0: Coming Home Well, a multi-channel network of podcasts geared towards educating, supporting, and advocating for the veteran and veteran caregiver communities. Listen on your favorite platform. New episodes every week. Search for your favorite podcast by name. Coming Home Well, behind the service, beyond the front line, be crazy well, and peace after combat. Or visit our website at cominghomewell.com. Until all are home and all are well.
1: Welcome back to Coming Home Well. I'm Libby, your host. I'm from Behind the Service, and it's always a pleasure connecting with our listeners over here at Coming Home Well. I'm thrilled to be able to connect with Dr. Paula Snurr. She's the Executive Director of the VA's National Center for PTSD. She's a psychologist and the lead author of one of the largest PTSD studies to date with any population. So today, Paula is going to come on and talk to us about the research outcomes from two of the top VA psychotherapies. We have prolonged exposure therapy, and we have cognitive behavioral therapy. So thank you, Paula, for taking the time to come on and speak to us about the urge that is so desperately needed to help treat our veterans with PTSD.
2: Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate the chance to talk to your listeners.
1: Absolutely. So before we dive into the study, would you break down what PTSD is, and then let's go into Prolonged exposure therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. So listeners can understand what the difference is. Yes. Is there a difference?
2: Yes, because cognitive because prolonged exposure is also cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a general class of therapies that involve the techniques that you use in exposure or cognitive therapy. So yes, there there is a difference. Cognitive behavioral therapy is an umbrella for many different types of treatments. And in fact, prolonged exposure is a specific exposure treatment and cognitive processing therapy is a specific cognitive treatment. And then what is, what is PTSD? Explain that to our listeners. PTSD is a mental health condition that can happen in people who've been exposed to a traumatic event, such as physical or sexual assault, combat, which perhaps many of your listeners have experienced, disasters and serious accidents. The the symptoms include vividly remembering the event in some way, so intrusive memories or even flashbacks, avoiding anything that reminds the person of the event, changes in thoughts and moods, such as it's very common to be cut off, feel numb or angry or guilty, and then being hyper aroused, keyed up. Now, it's, it's common in anyone who's experienced a traumatic event that you'll have some of these symptoms after the event, but they tend to lessen in the days and the weeks that follow. So we don't call everything PTSD. We only diagnose PTSD if those four types of symptoms that I mentioned are present, if they're severe and they've lasted at least a month. We estimate that about 6% of the overall U.S. population will have PTSD at some point in their lives. And overall, about 7% of the veteran population will experience PTSD. So you might think, well, wait a minute. I know a lot of people with PTSD. That seems low. Here's the reason, is that veterans are a heterogeneous group. Only some veterans served during wartime, when, when you're much more likely to have a traumatic experience. And only some veterans in wartime actually go to a war zone. And so to look at PTSD in, in veterans, it's very helpful to understand it from the perspective of their experience. So if we look, for example, at veterans of the recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, it looks like the prevalence is 15 or 20 percent. That's a, And that's a, a current prevalence. So that's a whole lot higher than the 6.9 percent that we see in the general veteran population.
1: So prolonged exposure therapy, can you go in depth of Kind of what that is, what sure. what did they experience during a session. So prolonged
2: exposure therapy is a type of what we call trauma-focused psychotherapy. And these are the therapies that have the best evidence and the most evidence. Just let me say that prolonged exposure is one of them. Cognitive processing therapy, which we also studied is another. And another that's been widely studied is called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR. And these, these I I would say are the, the big three, but there are also other effective treatments. For example, we have a written exposure therapy that's only five brief sessions. That's also a type of trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. So in prolonged exposure, the, the treatment focuses on helping a person get control over their traumatic memories. One of the key symptoms in PTSD and something that keeps it occurring is avoidance because anything that reminds you of the trauma reminds you of the trauma. It feels bad. So it's natural to leave the situation, stop talking to the person, turn the television off, whatever it is. But by doing that, you actually increase the avoidance and increase that cycle and exposure helps you break it two ways in prolonged exposure. One is that you will narrate the your expo- the experience vividly to, to put yourself back in it. Now, people don't get forced to do this It is distressing, but it's not overwhelming. And if you do this repeatedly, what if people do this repeatedly, it lessens the distress, the pain of the memory, the fear of the memory. So that's one piece of prolonged exposure. The other piece is going to situations that remind you of the experience. So they should be objectively safe. For example, if you were assaulted in a bad part of town, you wouldn't be assigned as a homework assignment to go to the bad part of town, but you'd be assigned to do something that got you in touch with the feelings and to stay in the situation long enough for the anxiety and the fear to decrease. Now that might seem improbable to listeners who have PTSD, but it really does work. If you stay long enough, if you listen, if you tell the story or listen to the story enough
1: times, your distress decreases. So that's prolonged exposure. Right. That make, that makes sense. Although, like like you said, I think those with PTSD, you you try not to think about the the memories. So that's why it's confusing. Like it works, okay. <laughs>
2: Well, many people who have prolonged exposure don't
1: like hearing this because it sounds like the opposite of how they've
2: been living and the opposite of what works, but, but it's different from what's, what, what's working isn't really working. It's just creating the, the, the cycle. vicious cycle. And if you can, with prolonged exposure, you do this gradually, you do it repeatedly, you can break that cycle. And the goal is not to forget the memory. A traumatic experience is a part of who you are, it's a, it's a part of your life, but, but what prolonged exposure or any treatment can help you do is accommodate that memory and make it part of your history. And, and of course, if distressing memories should always be distressing, but they shouldn't be overwhelming. So what, what you're aiming for with prolonged exposure, or any treatment is to help a person own the memory without being overwhelmed by the memory. Right. And then cognitive processing therapy. You want to go into that a little bit? Sure. So, other changes that happen to people with PTSD is is that they change their thoughts about the world, and thoughts drive feelings. And some of the common thoughts are that the world is not safe, that 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 there's something wrong with me because I let this happen to me, that that I'm incompetent or that I'm guilty. It's all my fault. That that I'm un, unworthy because I let something bad happen to someone else. And what you do in cognitive processing therapy is examine these thoughts. You're, you learn skills for objectively examining the evidence for your thoughts. And, and generally when doing that, if the thoughts are unrealistic, people on their own come to realize that they're not unworthy that the world isn't a completely unsafe place, that, that they're not a, a loser, <laughs> that that they are a, a worthwhile person. And in, in doing that, uh, the feelings change and behaviors will change because people are seeing themselves and the world in a different light. So in, in, in the case of, of cognitive processing therapy, the trauma focus is more on the thoughts that go along with The the traumatic experience. So they differ, and this is important and why we wanted to compare the treatments because they both have very good results and they're both cognitive behavioral therapies, but they go about the treatment differently.
1: So, how do you determine or how do therapists determine what treatment they use, like what treatment the veterans will use during the sessions? Well, typically there's some discussion
2: some sharing of information so that veterans' preferences can be accommodated. That varies a lot because sometimes people wind up being scheduled with a person who Who does one treatment or the other, and that may result in the the veteran likely to get the treatment that that therapist has, but if, if there's a preference for the other treatment or yet another treatment that would be accommodated. In the bigger question is what treatment works best for which person? And that's something that we are planning to study with the data we have from this study. But the first step was just to compare the two treatments. Now, that was important as well, because the VA has embarked since 2007 on a program to train VA providers in these treatments, because they are effective treatments. They're what we call evidence-based treatments. Many therapists, especially in the private sector now, don't know how to do these treatments. And so if you're a veteran or a non-veteran, you're you're going for care outside of the VA, your chances of getting the most effective treatment are a lot lower. And so VA recognized the need to train our our therapists. So we've invested a lot of money. We've trained over 10,000 people in one or both of these treatments right now. And it's helpful to know they both look effective, but there had been only one study done years ago to compare them. And that study found they were equally effective for PTSD. But it was done in civilian women who had survived sexual assault. And so the question of does it apply to veterans, does it apply to people who have had combat and the like, that, that was unknown. So it was important for us to know these answers because VA has worked so hard to, to give veterans access to these treatments.
1: Yeah, going back to what you said, whether or not the, which therapy is appropriate, for which person based on the study, it's undetermined at this time, really, then like say men versus women, what's best for a man versus a woman. I mean, you can even go break it down into like the trauma itself, a military sexual trauma versus say combat PTSD from blast or whatever. So you don't really know right now currently, but you will be trying to study that then.
2: Yes, we're actively doing these analyses. And I wish I had something I could share, but we're in the middle of analyses and it's too soon to tell. But let me pick up on the examples that you just presented. So there's been some thought because cognitive processing therapy focuses a lot on issues of guilt and shame, which many people who've had military sexual trauma, male or female, experience. And so you might think that cognitive processing therapy would be better for people who've had military sexual trauma but maybe that maybe that's not true because both of these treatments actually were developed to treat women who had been sexually assaulted and i in the context of the military you you also have that the sexual assault happening in context. And so there's chain of command concerns, how did the military let this happen to me and, and the like, but it's, but it's also a sexual assault. So the, both of these treatments were developed for and shown to be effective for sexual assault. So, so I'm hopeful, maybe you can have me back in six months or so, so we can answer that, that question. So the takeaway for, for your listeners is that what we found is that both of these treatments were effective that prolonged exposure was somewhat more effective at decreasing the average severity of symptoms, but also more effective in helping people have a clinically meaningful response and remission of symptoms. So there was some advantage to prolonged exposure, but it, but overall, the data suggests that both of the treatments are effective and that that veteran preference I think right on the basis of the data right now veteran preference should be the driver which treatment sounds better for you do you, do you like the idea of the the kind of homework you do in one or the other for would you want to go and visit locations around your city to do your exposure therapy or would you rather work with worksheets to do your cognitive restructuring those are the kind of conversations that a therapist may have with a veteran to help them decide call that shared decision-making to help a person understand what's involved in treatment and pick what's best for them.
1: And here's a question. As a caregiver, do you include the caregiver's suggestions or into that decision-making? Are caregivers able to provide insight into what's you know what's going on? Is there a better program available basically for families? Because veterans deal with the PTSD, but also the families and the caregivers deal with the PTSD, so it affects the entire family. Is there are is VA trying to work towards that goal of making sure that the whole family is good and being able to make decisions together as a family?
2: I I can't speak. For family therapy and VA, so I can can speak around it to answer the question for you. Based on what I know, this is a preference that veterans, this is an individual preference for veterans, because some veterans really want their families involved and some veterans don't. Right. And and so, from the perspective of caregivers, what do caregivers have input? I would say it depends. VA does offer family therapy and does offer couple therapy. So there are we also have caregiver support programs. But but I think I am not I don't have the knowledge to answer your question with the authority that I that could generalize to mm-hmm. VA or all veterans. I think this is another case in which the the veterans preference, just like with the preference for their treatment, their preference for family involvement should be accommodated. One thing I will say is that it looks like family support is very important for people to to get into treatment and to stay in treatment. But I will say there's also some interesting findings from family support because sometimes family members who are intending to be supportive actually might be doing things that, for example, help the veteran avoid. So it's important to provide support without reinforcing that avoidance cycle that that I mentioned. Trying to protect, many people talk about doing whatever they can to protect their veteran loved one from feeling increased distress, but actually some increased distress as you have in prolonged exposure is therapeutic. So it does suggest the importance of working with family members so, so those who care can provide the right kind of support. Right. May I make a plug for the National Center for PTSD? You absolutely can. Okay. Yes. So we have on our website some materials for family members, both to help them help their affected veteran as well as themselves, because you have to take care of yourself. Right. And our website is ptsd.va.gov. And then once you get, there's information, I think, that you can find for friends and families. I encourage people to look at it. Even veterans with PTSD may want to look at it and find out what we're, we're telling them about family members. But we do recognize the importance of not just the individual veteran with PTSD, but the, their, their family and their friend context, too, because
1: friends matter as well. I know that just being in groups, support groups and different things like that for caregivers and family members, that's a big, um, big issue a lot of the time is the family doesn't feel like they're included in the treatment of our veterans. And I thought, hey, I have you on here today. I'm definitely going to address that with you and ask you and just kind of see where you know, where you were in that, or where the center was in that? The National Center for PTSD,
2: one of our investigators, Candice Munson, who has since left, developed an effective couple treatment for PTSD. It's called Cognitive Behavioral Conjoint Therapy. And it's, it's not just, say, for a, a husband and a wife or partners who are, are living together. A friend could come, a parent could come with a daughter for example. We do recognize the importance of engaging family members in care. And as I said, it's, it's really a, a veteran preference issue. And there's certainly more work to be done because finding the optimal way to engage families and caregivers is still an important scientific question.
1: Yeah. So during the study, do you believe that medications played any type of role in the results of the study? So in the study, we allowed people who had been on medications
2: for a a course of one to two months a stable drugs, stable dose of medication to enter the study. I don't believe it had any effect based both on this study as well as looking at other studies. First of all, people on those medications still had severe PTSD. So if the medications were working, they had only worked to a certain degree. Maybe they had improved a person from having more severe PTSD to less but they weren't doing all of the job secondly we randomized people to one treatment or the other so it it was people were equally likely to be on medication Uh, whether they were in prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapy. Another factor is that although there haven't been many studies that have looked at combined medication in uh, PTSD, what I mean is psychotherapy plus medication, there's not overwhelming evidence right now that the medications that people typically would take for PTSD, which are largely certain types of antidepressants, there's not not evidence that those medications actually enhance psychotherapy. And having looked at this in more detail in past studies where we looked at the outcomes of people who were on medication and not on medication, we didn't see that there was any difference. So so I think the medication in this study was not playing a role in the pattern of findings that we had.
1: Okay. So is there or was there a procedure in place to track any like negative outcomes to better determine if the treatments were effective or appropriate for each individual? So like, I'm glad you was- asked that. I'm glad you asked that question.
2: In research studies, typically you do this kind of assessment because it's important not just to understand the benefits of treatment, but also the harms. And you may, in medication studies, you may look at symptoms, side effects, as well as more significant harms, such as being hospitalized, suicide attempts, death. I'm not talking about PTSD treatment studies necessarily because our treatments don't, don't cause death, but you track these things. They're called serious adverse events. And so it, it it's absolutely required that you do this. It's not just an option. And so we looked at serious adverse events. We also looked at lesser events that might be important. For example, did a person go to jail? Did they have some other significant adversity in their lives? And what we found is that there. People certainly had significant life events. There were, I wish I had the numbers in front of me right now, but I want to assure you and your listeners that the events that we saw that were significant were largely unrelated to the treatments. So that there were some events where a person might've been hospitalized and it wasn't clear whether it was distress caused by the, the, the therapy that they had engaged in. Because these, Therapies do increase distress distress to some extent, but largely there was no no evidence that these treatments were unsafe and that they were causing bad outcomes. And we also actually looked at symptom worsening as an outcome and it happened in almost no one. It happened in just a couple people in prolonged exposure and a couple more in cognitive processing therapy. So I, I do I didn't say this before, I think, but while we're talking about this, it's one of the issues for people when they think about these trauma-focused therapies, because there for many people there will be a transitory increase in distress. And for some people, it'll be stronger than for other people. But based on the many people we've treated in research and in care in VA, the, these increases are short-term and they're manageable. And so that the Uh, The goal of the therapy is to engage with traumatic memory, and that will be distressing if if people can remember that and also uh, communicate with their therapist about what's going on adequately so that distress is managed and addressed if it it lasts too long or it's too severe.
1: So what issues or limitations did you encounter while conducting the study, meaning like what data weren't you able to capture? Well,
2: I think that the, the thing that I'm trying to,
1: to frame this in, in a way that I
2: think would be most interesting for listeners. One thing that we measured quality of life and functioning, and that's really important. Our primary outcome, our focus was PTSD. I think that we did a good job with measuring PTSD and depression and anxiety and a lot of other things and quality of life and functioning. But I wish we had talked to people in what we say uh, qualitative research framework. So we had just asked open-ended questions and had fully captured that to hear the stories of the veterans of their experience of treatment and how it was impacting their lives. So to me, that's that's the single biggest gap in the study. It's typical in a big study like this that you wouldn't get that kind of information. And we do have incidental comments that we entered in the records, but to hear the richer stories of veterans experience would be great. After the study, a number of participants have reached out with questions or to let us know how they're doing. And having talked to a few of those people, I'm convinced that it would have been wonderful to have the have more stories of the veterans who took part.
1: I think that people can relate to the stories. I feel like that would be a great avenue for you guys to explore is to share those stories of success yeah. so that others can see that, hey, this therapy does work for veterans. So how can our veterans enroll in v- VA studies in the research studies? What is the, the protocol for that?
2: There are there are several venues for doing that. Sometimes this information will be available online on various sources, but I think the single best way to do this is to reach out to your local VA, and a veteran might contact the research service there, or if they're engaged in care, ask their care providers about what research is available. Also, the, the National Institute of Mental Health has online information about studies that are available, And some of these studies might actually be taking place at VA. They're not all non-VA studies. So that's another nationwide portal for veterans to learn about research opportunities.
1: And the study was done over, was it 17 different VA facilities that were involved in the study? Yes, 17 VAs. What's your plan moving forward for the future research in PTSD for our veterans?
2: So... As the head of the National Center for PTSD, I'm trying to ensure that our portfolio does several things. W- one is that we actually work on medication development because the medications we have don't work, the best medications don't work as well as the best psychotherapies. So we need to work, work in that area and we are. The other is to enhance the effective treatments we already have. So I had mentioned that largely the medications for PTSD combined with the psychotherapies for PTSD don't seem to boost the effectiveness, but we haven't given up on that strategy. It's finding the right uh, combination of how can we enhance effective treatment? For example, we're doing some research using ketamine, which has also been used as a treatment for a PTSD or depression. And for PTSD, it doesn't have a clear signal of, of effectiveness, but there are reasons to think that it might enhance prolonged exposure because of the way it affects memory. It might help you learn to extinguish the fear that you have about the trauma memory. So, so enhancing medication or, and identifying non medications, enhancing the treatments we have, and then making treatment more accessible, making it more convenient. So finding ways to do treatment on your phone or to to do treatment in the privacy of your home. Those are the kind of issues that we think can help because there is effective treatment But for some people, access is harder than for others. I live in a rural part of the country, and our veterans have to drive many of them. Our catchment area is very, very wide. And so for them to have the ability to be treated in
1: their home by
2: telehealth or to pick up their phone and be treated by
1: phone would be a great benefit. Yeah, telehealth has been a godsend for a lot of veterans and their families. Did you want to add anything else before we end today? Is there something that we didn't cover that maybe you would like to address?
2: Well, we're encouraging people, even even veterans who've been in in VA care, to take a a self-screen. If you've had a traumatic experience and you're having symptoms that bother you, please go to the National Center website and take a self-screen. If you screen positive, reach out to your local VA for care. The other, and I I hope it it came through in what I, I said, the other message I want to communicate is that there's hope. I've been in the field since 1985. If I had given this talk then, we didn't know a lot about treating PTSD. And for many people, it looked like it just would be a chronic disorder. And we would teach people to cope with their symptoms. Now, we're not there yet. Not everyone responds to treatment or responds adequately. So I don't want to make it sound as if there's a silver bullet for PTSD, but it's not a life sentence. We have effective treatments and we're working hard to make them better. So the, the most important message, if, if I can get across to people, if you have PTSD, reach out for care. If you've had treatment, try again, because sometimes the first thing you try won't work and you need to try and maybe even try again. But ultimately, we believe that we can help veterans with PTSD live a better life. Love
1: that. So listeners, if you haven't checked out all the resources for PTSD on the VA website, head over to the PTSD National Center for PTSD at va.gov to check that out. They have resources for veterans, for families, for children. They have mobile apps over there, the PTSD Coach, the PTSD Family, PTSD Family Coach assist with managing and coping with stress as well as games. I got on there the other night, just kind of searching around. They have the gold miner game on there and there's a high, medium and low stress level. You got like boulders, like getting, it's like life, right? Things get in your way and you have to work around those and figure out the best way around. So there are um, resources on the website to go check those out. So I appreciate you guys tuning in and paula i appreciate you being here today listeners it was so good to be here with you and tune in next time
0: thanks for joining us this week on coming home well if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast please share it with others post about it on social media or leave a rating and a review follow us on instagram at coming home well underscore bts or on twitter at coming home well thanks again And until all are home and all are well, this is Coming Home Well.